Amen. Amen. All right, let's go to 1 Kings chapter 1. 1 Kings chapter 1. <clears throat> um, if I do any awkward noises this morning, it's because things are moving around in cavities. In, you know. Um, 1 Kings chapter 1. Uh, so we are walking through our story God series. Uh, we're having a good time with it. Uh, if, if you don't have a Bible, grab one of those around you. They're scattered throughout the room. We also have the, the text up on the screens behind me just a little bit. Uh, listen, if you don't own a Bible, we would invite you to take one of those physical ones home. Uh, we believe that God uses his word to, to teach us about himself and to, to reveal himself to us and convict us of sin and draw us to repentance and, and show us what salvation is through Jesus. And so if you don't have a Bible of your own, then you're, you're kind of at a loss. And so we want to fix that. And so if you don't have one, take that one home. Uh, 1 Kings chapter 1. Like I said, we're uh, walking through our Story of God series, uh, and uh, I happen to think it's really great because, you know, it was my idea and stuff, but we're having, we're having fun with it. <laughs> if you're not, you're at least along for the ride, all right? Um, and so we've been, uh, we've been having a great time with it. Uh, we've been uh, in this series, if you add all the weeks together, we've taken some breaks in there, about 16, 17 weeks now, and so we've looked at that many characters so far. And so uh, uh, the premise of the series is incredibly simple. We believe that the entire Bible is about Jesus. And I think most everybody, at least most Christians, would say, oh yeah, okay, yeah, of course it is. And when we start pushing on what exactly that means, it, it starts to, to fray out a little bit. I think people are very, very quick to say that the Gospels are about Jesus, or maybe the, the New Testament as a whole. And maybe even a lot of people would say, oh, those messianic prophecies toward the end of the Old Testament, those are about Jesus too, right? I mean, they got some other stuff going on, but they're talking about a Jesus to come, a Messiah to come, so they're about Jesus. No, we mean the entire Bible is about Jesus, from Genesis 1 all the way to Revelation 22. That the entire Bible is about Jesus. Even weird stories about God raising up a murdering guy with a lisp to be his mouthpiece to rescue his people out of slavery in Egypt. Like even that's a story about Jesus. Jesus is never mentioned anywhere in the story, but he's all over the place if you pay attention. He's definitely in there. He's behind it all, orchestrating it all. Um, and so we believe the whole Bible is about Jesus, but it's different for me to, to stand up on the stage and make that claim, it's another thing to show my work, all right? And so we've taken up the practice of walking through the major characters of the Old Testament and asking the question, how does their story tell me about the much larger and much more beautiful story of God? How does their story point me to a Jesus to come who's going to do everything they did but on a way cooler level? All right? But that's, that's a hard question to ask. It's admittedly kind of big, so we've also uh, taken up the practice of breaking it into smaller questions. Number one, how was this person raised up? Number two, what made this person a seemingly bad choice? Number three, what did God do to redeem them? And what's number four? So bad at this. All right, how does their story preach the gospel? How does their story preach the gospel? If we answer those four questions faithfully, if we, if we answer them correctly, I think we position ourselves in such a way that the story of God question, the much bigger, uh, much more daunting story of God question, is actually pretty easy to answer. All right? And so let's, let's take a shot at that. Who's our character for the day? Those of you who have a bulletin already know. Solomon, David's son, the next great king of Israel, right? But let's round out his profile. The wise king, the party animal. The spiritual adulterer. Uh-oh. All right. You ready to look at question one? Good. That's what we're doing. All right. How was Solomon raised up? Well, for starters, with great, great connections. All right. First Corinthians, not first Corinthians, first Kings, chapter one. Let's look at verse 15. 
So to set the stage here, uh, we need to understand that this is happening at the very end of King David's life, okay? The absolute very end of King David's life. We talked last week about David's eldest sons. Do you remember who their names were? Two of his elder sons that died. Absalom and Amnon, all right? There was this really weird thing that we won't get into now. You can go back and look at the podcast later if you want to. It goes bad, and two of David's three eldest sons die in, the, in that little interaction. There's another of his sons, the second-born son, Chiliab, has disappeared by this point in the story. We don't know what happened to him. We think he died by this point. We don't know. But Chiliab's not in the picture anymore. And so that means that David's fourth-born son, Adonijah, is starting to look around going, hey, this is looking pretty good for me. <laughs> and so he sets himself up to be the next king of Israel. And under their customs... That's a natural thing, right? Three eldest sons are gone. He's fourth in line. It's his turn. The only problem with that is David's already made a promise that his youngest son, Solomon, is going to be the next king. We got some family drama, right? We got some big old family drama. Adonijah sees David is getting close to dying. He starts doing all the things necessary to make himself, proclaim himself as king. He's making sacrifices. He's getting people to praise him in the streets. And we got some drama unfolding. And in 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 15, Mama Bathsheba says this. So Bathsheba went to the king in his chamber. Now the king was very old. Abishag the Shunammite was attending to the king. Bathsheba bowed and, prayed and paid homage to the king. And, said, and the king said, what do you desire? And she said to him, my lord, you swore to your servant by the Lord your God, saying, Solomon your son shall reign after me, and he shall sit on my throne. And now behold, Adonijah is king, although you, my lord, the king, do not know it. He has sacrificed oxen, fattened cattle, and sheep in abundance, and has invited all the sons of the king, Abiathar the priest, and Joab the commander of the army. But Solomon your servant, he has not invited. And now, my lord, the king, the eyes of all Israel are on you to tell them who shall sit on the throne of my lord, the king, after him. Okay, so Adonijah doesn't just set himself up as king. He's kind of going about it in a sneaky way, right? It says that he's inviting all these people, but he doesn't invite Solomon to this party because he knows what's, what's supposed to happen with Solomon. He sets himself up as king. He doesn't invite Solomon. In another place, we learn that he doesn't invite Bathsheba either. He doesn't invite Nathan the prophet either. Right? And so Adonijah's kind of doing this in this really sneaky way. <laughs> Somebody's done. The Bible's reading to him again. Man, we got to fix that. I love y'all, but we got to fix that. All right. Bathsheba and Nathan the prophet both come to David to fight for Solomon's cause. It's Margie, everybody. <laughs> we love you, Margie. All right. Welcome to National Baptist, guys. This is how we roll. And in verse 28, in verse 28 of 1 Kings 1, we read this. Then King David answered, call Bathsheba to me. So she came to the king's presence and stood before the king. And the king swore, saying, as the Lord lives, who has redeemed my soul out of every adversity, as I swore to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, saying, Solomon, your son, shall reign after me, and he shall sit on my throne in my place, even so will I do this day. And so David goes, ah, no, no, we're we going to fix this. Even though he's sick in bed, he's close to death, he says, no, 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 I made a promise. I'm going to keep that promise. Let's put the work together. And 
Then right there, they anoint Solomon to be the next king of Israel. They place him on David's own mule and have him riding through the streets with the king's own procession going, praise Solomon, long live the new king. Solomon has incredible connections that, that fight for him, right? He's not just one of the sons of David. He's also got several people fighting battles for him that help him get to where he wants to be. Solomon is raised up with great connections, but that's not all he's raised up with. He's also raised up with great wisdom. Flip over to chapter 3. In chapter 3 of 1 Kings, we read this. Start, skip over the first couple of verses. Start with verse 3. Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of David his father, only he sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. Call a little time out here. This is going to come into play a little bit later. If you're wondering what the high places are about, um, here's what you need to lock down and we'll revisit it in a little bit. The worship of, of God in Israel at this point in history is happening in a tabernacle and it ain't on a hill somewhere. So what's going on in the high places? But let's come back to that later. Verse 4. And the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for that was the great high place. Solomon used to offer a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, Ask what I shall give you. Verse 6, And Solomon said, You have shown great and steadfast love to your servant David my father, because he walked before you in faithfulness, in righteousness, and in uprightness of heart toward you. And you have kept from him his, this great and steadfast love, and have given him a son to sit on his throne this day. And now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of David my father. Although I am but a little child, I do not know how to come out or go out or come in. And, you, and your servant is in the midst of your people, whom you have chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. Verse 9, give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to govern this your great people? It pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this. And God said to him, because you have asked this and have not asked for yourself long life or riches or the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right, behold, I now do according to your word. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind so that none like you has been before you and none like you shall arise after you. I give you also what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that no other king shall compare with you all your days. And if you will walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and my commandments as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. And Solomon awoke, and behold, it was a dream. And then he came to Jerusalem, stood before the ark of the covenant of the Lord, and offered up burnt offerings and peace offerings, and made a feast for all of his servants. Okay, so Solomon sees his own inadequacy here, right? He has a dream, and he begs God in that dream to give him wisdom. And God seems to think that that's a great idea. And so not only does God give him more wisdom, the Bible says, than anyone before or after him. But the Bible also says that he'll go and throw in all the other stuff too. All the riches and the power and all that other stuff. Not exactly a bad deal, right? And under Solomon's reign, the kingdom absolutely blows up. It just expands everywhere. It expands in political clout. It expands in wealth. It expands its borders. And it does so peaceably. Like during David's day, they got a lot of those things, but it's because David had a better army than everybody else. Solomon does it through diplomacy. The kingdom flourishes under Solomon's rule, and he doesn't have to go fight a battle to do it. Everything's going well. He even has 
ends up having leaders of other countries come to him and says, and say, hey, can you give me advice over this thing? I need some help. That's not a bad place to be if you're the head of a country, right? So Solomon is raised up with great connections and he's raised up with great wisdom, but that's not all he's raised up with. He's also raised up with great opulence. Now, why do I say opulence? That's a weird word, right? right? Uh, couldn't we just use, say, say the word wealth? Couldn't we just use that? <laughs> well, well, 1 Kings 4. Opulence is exactly the word that we need to use. 1 Kings 4. Look at verse 22. Solomon's provision for one day was 30 cores of fine flour and 60 corns of meal. Time out. So a core is a measurement that we don't really use much anymore. Um, it's kind of hard to pin down because it's, it's, it's a measurement we, measurement we don't use much anymore, right? So how much is a quart? Like, like 50 to 80 gallons is what we think. So I, I know that's a big window, but like some of us may be helped by the, by the picture in our head. Think barrel. So I'll read this again. Solomon's provision for one day was 30 barrels of fine flour, 60 barrels of of meal. Verse 23, 10 fat oxen, 20 pasture-fed cattle, 100 sheep, besides deer, gazelles, roebucks, and fat and fowl. Skip down to 26. Solomon also had 40,000 stalls of horses for his chariots and 12,000 horsemen. Skip over to chapter 10, verse 14. Chapter 10, verse 14, we read this. Now the weight of gold that came to Solomon in one year was 666 talents of gold. Okay, two things. Number one, that number doesn't mean anything weird because I know that's a question I'm going to be asked. Number two, how much is a talent? Also a measurement we don't use anymore, right? Most people think that a talent was the weight of a man. Some people, more people, think that a talent was somewhere between 75 and 100 pounds. So it couldn't be my weight of a man. <laughs> but maybe a weight of a man then. I don't know. Let's take the conservative side. 75 pounds worth. Do the math. 666 talents comes out to roughly 50,000 pounds of gold as his annual salary. Now the weight of gold that came to Solomon in one year was 666 talents of gold, verse 15. Besides that, which came from the explorers and from the business of the merchants and from all the kings in the west and from the governors of the land, King Solomon made 200 large shields of beaten gold, 600 shekels of gold went into each shield. And he made 300 shields of beaten gold, three minas of gold went into each shield. And the king put them in the house of the forest of Lebanon, that's kind of like part of his house, verse 18. And the king also made a great ivory throne and overlaid it with the finest gold. And the throne had six steps and the throne had a round top and each side of the seat were armrests with two lions standing beside the armrests, while 12 lions stood there, one on each of the end of the six steps. The like of it was never made in any kingdom. Duh. 21. All King Solomon's drinking vessels were of gold, and all the vessels of the house of the force of Lebanon were of pure gold. None were of silver. Quote, silver was not considered as anything in the days of Solomon. 22, for the king had a fleet of ships of Tarshish at sea and the fleet of Hiram. Once every three years, the fleet of ships of Tarshish used to come bringing gold, silver, ivory, apes, and peacocks because every opulent house needs a peacock. 
Thus King Solomon excelled all the kings of the earth in riches and in wisdom, and the whole earth sought the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom, which God had put into his mind. Verse 25, every one of them brought his present, articles of silver and gold, garments, myrrh, spices, horses, and mules, so much year by year. Solomon was blessed and highly favored to use the nonsense vocabulary of the prosperity gospel. Blessed and highly favored. Solomon was raised up with great connections. Solomon was raised up with great wisdom. And Solomon was raised up with absolute opulence. On top of that, Solomon also wrote three books of the Bible. Or at least we think three books of the Bible. Proverbs, which is practical wisdom about how to live life. He also wrote, I got my slides backwards. He also wrote Song of Solomon, which is this beautiful picture of romantic love that, that also seems to mirror the relationship between God and man. Like, the depth of poetry there is insanely deep. It, it's a beautiful thing. And then he, and he writes Ecclesiastes, we think he writes Ecclesiastes. And Ecclesiastes is all about ultimate satisfaction. Chasing after ultimate satisfaction. Solomon does the kind of things with his resources. Remember, he's got more wealth than anybody before or after him. And so Solomon does the kind of things with his resources that all of us just kind of wish we could do. And then end up thinking that the grass is greener somewhere else. Solomon, though, has the resources that he doesn't have to, to be weighed down by that. And so he, he fleshes it out. First, Solomon partied. Right? That's really cool. And then he comes to the end of that and decides, yeah, it's not what I thought it was. And then Solomon builds stuff. Like, like a lot of stuff. Like, like you think that like, like you planted a garden in your backyard. And so you puff up your chest a little bit. It's like, look at my garden, right? Solomon planted forests, like national forests. Or we dig a, a pool out in the back and, we, and we, get, we start walking with a little bit of a swagger. Hey, you, get, you see that pool? Solomon dug lakes. Remember, we're talking about a guy who was unrestrained by resources. The only thing standing in Solomon's way was Solomon's own imagination. And he gets to the end of that, he's like, yeah, it's not what I thought it was. His conclusion in Ecclesiastes is that if it's possible for us to chase these things to their limits and still not find satisfaction, well, we must necessarily be made for some greater pleasure that's not on this earth. Man, Solomon is smart. He is a sharp guy. So if you were here last week, I said then that that all the Jews coming after David thought David was the best king ever. Like they, that, that was the guy they wanted to hold all the, the, the future kings up to and say, does he compare to David? That David's the one that they wish they could get back to. And after all this stuff about Solomon, you're probably wondering if I have a couple screws loose, right? Why wouldn't they celebrate Solomon like that? we have another question to ask this morning, right? What made Solomon a seemingly bad choice? And the answer, church, 
It's because the greatest earthly wisdom may gain you a lot of things in this world, but it doesn't get you anywhere on a spiritual level. It may gain you all kinds of stuff here. But the greatest wisdom on the planet, literally the Bible makes that claim. None before or none since. You got to deal with the Bible's claim on that. But even the greatest wisdom the earth has ever seen doesn't gain him a darn thing on a spiritual level. Thousands of pounds of gold is really nice and peace on every side is nice and all the other leaders of all the surrounding nations uh, uh, wanting to, to co- cooperate with you and celebrate with you and partner with you. That's really, really nice. But what does that get you with God? It, think God cares about his giant pile of gold? Think God cares, needs Solomon's diplomatic ability? It also turns out that one of the wisest men to ever live is also one of the dumbest. 1 Kings chapter 11. 1 Kings chapter 11, look at verse 1. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, or Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women, from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. Verse 3, he had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as as was the heart of David his father. Verse 5, for Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. And so Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow the Lord, excuse me, as David his father had done. Verse 7, then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites, on the mountain east of Jerusalem. And so he did for all his foreign wives, he who made offerings and sacrificed to their gods. So uh, we've mostly ignored a glaring problem in the life of Solomon so far, but let's go ahead and talk about it because it's a doozy, right? God gives his people the command to abstain from intermarrying into the other cultures around them. All right, all the way back at Sinai. So several hundred years before this. And he repeats that command over and over again throughout the story and explicitly gives that command to Solomon in verse 2 that we just read. Explicitly passes that command, repeats that command again to Solomon. So if you haven't been here for the couple of times over the course of the series that we've talked about this, it may be a little confusing. Um, we, we talked about this idea of intermarrying with the other tribes around them as an issue. So why is it an issue? Um, it has nothing to do with race. And I need to spell that out because there are people who have come before me in church history who have pointed to this and said it's, an, it's a race issue. It's not a race issue. It's an idolatry issue. All these other cultures have all their own gods. And when you combine these families together, it, a lot of this stuff gets mixed and religion gets to be a problem. We're talking about a true theocracy here. God sees that that syncretism is going to happen here. And he says, don't do this. Protect what I've given you here. He explicitly forbade it for his covenant people. 
And so if you're keeping score at home, not only does Solomon blatantly ignore God's command by marrying literally hundreds of women from other cultures. Like, like Solomon doesn't do anything halfway, right? Literally hundreds of women from other cultures. But he also builds temples for their false gods. He builds temples for them to worship in. He enables their wor- the worship of false gods in the land of Israel. And, there, and listen, there's all this debate circling around. of does, does Solomon participate in those things? Maybe he just built them for him. When we look at the, at the very beginning of our time, that Solomon would go up on the high places. The debate doesn't go away. There are legitimate arguments against that. They're not strong ones. We think Solomon worshipped false gods. But it gets worse because there wasn't just some random false gods no one's ever heard of. There were some names that rolled out there that throughout the course of the series you might be familiar with, right? Specifically, Ashtoreth, Molech, and Chemosh. Ashtoreth, is a, Ashtoreth was a fertility god uh, that was worshipped during the days of Gideon. We talked about Ashtoreth a little bit when we talked about Gideon. Ashtoreth was a fertility god. Guess how you worship the fertility god? We also talked about Molech and Chemosh when we talked about Ruth the Moabite because those are the gods of her people. How do you worship Molech? With child sacrifice. Literally, one of the, one of the, the avatars or the, the, the altars of the god Molech was a giant incinerator. That his body was made, to look, it was made to look like his statue out of an incinerator and the oven was his belly and he held his arms out like this at an angle and you put the child in his arms and gravity would force the child to roll down into his belly. Anybody want to go worship Molech later? <laughs> so follow this train of logic here. The king of God's covenant people, the one who is responsible for knowing God's law and carrying it out in a way that represents God to Israel and to the neighboring nations. And so call a little time out there. So literally, the king's job was to keep a copy of the law for himself. He would hand write it. A king had his own copy of the law that it was up to him to keep up. So the king had the law. It was his responsibility to carry it out, not only for his people, but for the fame of God's name to all the nations surrounding it. And that king, Solomon, is instead building temples to false gods so that at best case scenario, some of his wives can more easily make a child sacrifice every once in a while. Possibly participating in it himself. You think God cares about Solomon's giant pile of gold? Not one bit. You think God's sitting around in heaven super thankful that Solomon has brought peace from all the neighboring nations because of his just absolute great diplomacy? Maybe not. Probably not. So the next question definitely needs to be asked this morning, right? What did God do to redeem Solomon? What, what did God do to redeem Solomon? I mean, we talked last week about how terrible his father's sin was. Listen, Solomon's is worse. It's worse, guys. David had his moments, but Solomon, this is a lifestyle for him. I'll just be honest with you this morning. I, I wrestled with trying to answer this question this week. This is a hard question to answer. Usually I'm done with the, with the major structure of a sermon by lunch on Monday. 
Like, I know what I'm preaching months out, right? But like lunch on Monday, like the first few hours of Monday morning, I am knocking out the major structure for the sermon for the week, right? Unless somebody calls and we have a problem and I got to deal with it, right? But Monday at lunchtime, I'm usually done. And I'm like tweaking things all week long, emphasizing things here, de-emphasizing stuff there. Man, Solomon kicked my butt this week. Like, I changed course on Solomon like 12 times. I didn't finalize things till like Thursday afternoon. It was a busy week for me. Solomon's redemption question is hard to answer because Solomon falls off the mountaintop hard. We stopped reading in verse 8 of chapter 11. Look at verse 9. And the Lord was angry with Solomon. Because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice and had commanded him concerning this thing, that he should not go after other gods. But he did not keep what the Lord commanded. Verse 11, Therefore the Lord said to Solomon, Since this has been your practice, and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes that I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and will give it to your servant. Yet for the sake of David your father, I will not do it in your days, but I will tear it out of the hand of your son. However, I will not tear away all the kingdom, but I will give, you, uh, I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of David my servant and for the sake of Jerusalem that I have chosen." So what does that have to do with Solomon's redemption? God punishes them here, right? When we, those of you who were around for the first part of the series when we looked at Samson, right? We, we talked then about how his, his redemption element starts when he, when he fails with Delilah. Do you remember that? that? That God uses that moment to wake him up to his absolute pride and his desperate need for God. That God uses the moment of breaking in Samson to get Samson's attention. Here we see the same thing. God breaks Solomon. He breaks him. He would not allow Solomon to continue to sin against him. It was a lifestyle up to this point, but he absolutely rips that away from him. So God confronts him and he takes away the thing that kings usually tend to prize above everything else. His legacy. Why didn't you take away the gold? Why didn't you take this? Gold can come and go. Gold was as nothing to Solomon. But his legacy? God takes that away. The throne will be removed from your son. And that's exactly what happens if you don't know the story. After Solomon dies, his, son's Rehobo- or his son Rehoboam uh, ascends to the throne and immediately does something dumb that splits the kingdom. The ten northern tribes walk away immediately, like like the first weekend, guys. His son messes it up that fast. They're like, hey, should should we do this thing? And and he he ignores the advice of his counselors and instead gathers his boys around him. He's like, no, let's make all their work really hard. I'm going to show them how powerful a king I am. And immediately the kingdom falls apart. Ten tribes leave. The glory days of Israel are over just that fast. Just that fast. God takes away Solomon's legacy. God could have ended Solomon right then and there, right? Like snuffed him out in a moment. But instead he shows patience and he shows restraint and instead takes away his legacy. God breaks Solomon. That's not all he does. 
God also shows him, allows him to test the limits of his sin. And I want to be absolutely clear here. Um, I don't think this is how God normally operates. Nor do I want to operate that way. I, I, I don't want Solomon's story. And I beg God to make sure my kids don't have Solomon's story. Anybody else? I don't want Solomon's story. I, I want God to keep me from sin. I want him to protect me from that. Both hidden and presumptuous, to quote Psalm 19, which ironically was written by Solomon's daddy. But while it shouldn't be our aim, and while it's definitely not God's normal MO, God allows Solomon all the rope he wants to hang himself here. Why? Why would God do it that way? Because it produces a specific fruit. A specific fruit. Because the book of Ecclesiastes can be seen as long-form repentance. And this is why I wrestled with this all week. Because we're not 100% sure that Solomon wrote Ecclesiastes. Like, we're, we're kind of mostly confident he did. Like, there's good reasons to assume that's the case. But we're not 100%. So what does that affect? Like, like, like if, what, if he didn't write it, does that affect anything? Well, from the book's vantage point, no. It's still this incredibly deep piece of wisdom that, that points to uh, the, the nature of how empty or vain sin is, how hollow the chasing after these things are. And so there's, it's this incredibly beautiful, deep book of wisdom that we should love and adore, and it points us to Jesus, blah, 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 yes. But from Solomon's vantage point, if Solomon didn't write Ecclesiastes, that means we have absolutely zero of anything in Solomon's life to say he repented of his sin. So what do we do? <laughs> the more I pressed into it this week, the more, the more I had to come to the conclusion, yeah, I think Solomon did write it. Are, are there things that need to be dealt with on a scholarly level? Yeah, I think we can deal with them. And the more pressed in, not only was I convinced that he wrote it, I think he wrote it at the very end of his life. Which means, after this little moment with God. So, so what's Ecclesiastes all about? Solomon chased the party and he ended up calling it vain or empty. Hollow. Solomon chased after building monuments and mighty works and he ended up calling it empty. Solomon uh, chased after pleasure and he chased after health and he chased after youthfulness and he chased after relationships and other false gods and he did so to greater levels than you or I could ever imagine chasing after, right? We dream about these things and say, if only, no, 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 Solomon did it and he did it a hundred times. Like a good statistician, he collects the results. Everything else is empty. We're left with these, the grass is always greener attitudes, but Solomon says, nah, I beat you to it. They didn't follow through with what they promised. It's all vanity, he says. God let Solomon run all the way to the end of his leash. And his story is passed down to us so that we don't have to waste our time chasing after it either. 
We don't have to waste our time chasing after the same things because God's, uh, God's already allowed Solomon to flesh that out for us. We have his story passed down to us so that we can learn before we get there. But we also have a fourth question to answer this morning, right? How does Solomon's story preach the gospel? How does Solomon's story preach God's gospel? And truth be told, we have some options to look at. We could look at the Proverbs and talk about the, the godly wisdom and character that's offered there. We can, we can look at the, the, the Song of Solomon and talk about the picture of intimate relationship with God. Those are noble places, but I, I think our time is best spent this morning looking at the tail end of 1 Kings eleven thirteen that we read a while ago. However, I will not tear away all the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of David, my servant, for the sake of Jerusalem, quote, that I have chosen. Solomon was adulterous and idolatrous. He was a terrible king for God's covenant people. Just absolutely awful. He, he lacked the faithfulness that the job required at a core level. That's who God expected him to be. He dropped the ball about as hard as anybody could drop the ball on being the king of God's covenant people. Like when you're worshiping false gods on the mountain somewhere, you failed. But God's faithfulness to his covenant people wasn't dependent upon the faithfulness of their king back to him. I'll say that again. God's faithfulness to his covenant people wasn't dependent upon the faithfulness of their king back to God. He didn't need Solomon's faithfulness in order to be faithful himself. He doesn't save one tribe here because Solomon only messed up a little bit. Let's take, away, let's take away 10 of those 12 tribes. We'll let you keep one just as a warning. No, 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 no. I'm going to take it away. But listen, I'm not going to take it all away because I chose this people. I'm not turning my back on them. I chose them. God called Solomon to be faithful, but God was not dependent on the faithfulness of a sinful king. See, when God makes a promise, he keeps his promise. Every single time, church. He's a promise-keeping God. And it doesn't matter how far or how fast Solomon fell, Solomon wasn't big enough to mess up God's plan. What if Solomon was the biggest ever? Exactly. That's the point. The biggest one ever. The greatest king in terms of wealth. The greatest king in terms of wisdom. The greatest king in terms of diplomacy. The greatest king in terms of power and prestige still wasn't enough to slow down God's plan, let alone end it. He'll be all right. Last week we talked about how God raised up David as the greatest king Israel ever knew for the express purpose of showing, showing us that Israel and we needed a better king with a capital K. A better, more eternal, less sinful king. So Solomon's story isn't just a slight variation of last week. It's, it's almost the same exact story as last week, right? Which means we put in the work this morning to answer our big question, right? There's one overarching theme to this series. God raised up blank to be a shadow of a more perfect blank to come in Jesus. And so today we learn that God raised up Solomon to be a shadow of a far better Solomon to come in Jesus. 
God raised up the second greatest king Israel ever knew. The richest, the wisest, the most politically savvy king they ever knew. And he did it in order to show us and to show them that he alone is capable of being the one we give our allegiance to. God raised up the second greatest king in the history of Israel for the entire purpose of showing them the weakness and the futility of earthly kings and kingdoms. He did it all to set the stage for the true king, the king of kings and the lord of lords. This is the story of God, guys. So how do we respond to God's word this morning? Well, if you're a follower of Jesus, your, your response is to press into God today, right? You do that by pressing into his word. Solomon's story is a complicated one, but theologically we would say that every word of it was given to us so that we may know God, and so go chase after him there. Press into his word. But we can take another step, right? Maybe Solomon's story is a lot like your story. Like, like Solomon, your sins are real, and they have hurt a lot of people, and maybe they're really, really public. Just like Solomon, you have the opportunity to repent of that sin today. I don't recommend running to the end of the leash first. God gave that to Solomon. I don't know if he'll give it to us. Today's a good day to repent and to draw nearer to God. Listen, I'm, I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. We'll have a couple of leaders up front here to talk and pray with you that I'll serve you well. If you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus, man, I'm glad you're here. Glad you chose to hang out with us today. You can respond to God's word this morning too. You do that by repenting of your sin and trusting Jesus alone for salvation, the one that this story's all about, guys. I get it. You've, you've got a lot of things welling up inside of you telling that your sin is too big or too far or too often or too whatever. Most loving and pastoral thing I could say to you this morning is stop thinking of yourself so highly. Like if Solomon's junk wasn't too much, Like you think yours is? Solomon, Solomon did it worse. He doesn't do anything halfway, right? Solomon failed more greatly than you could imagine, and yet. But here's the greatest thing about the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not about comparing whose scars are bigger. Because at the end of the day, what we're ultimately talking about is the faithfulness of the God who chooses to save us. Despite our junk. We're not comparing scars here. We're celebrating the goodness of our king. It's about the resolute character of our savior, Jesus. See, the God who says, all who come to me who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. That is a God who always, always keeps his promises. And the God who says that all those who come to me, I will never cast out. That's a God who always, always keeps his promises. And the God who says that all those who call upon my name as Lord is a God who uh, I will save, they shall be saved, is a God who always, always keeps his promises. And so if you're hearing me correctly this morning, hear me say this, your sin is serious, but his grace, his mercy is more. Your sin is not, not serious, but his grace and his mercy are bigger still. So maybe today is the day that you're ready to walk in the grace that he's offering to you. I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. Listen, if you want to talk more about this, you come find me and we'll talk. But let's all respond to God's word this morning. God, you're good to us. Thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for the story of Solomon. 
God, I can't even begin to imagine failing you as greatly as he does. I know my own sin, and I see, I see the desperation in my own heart, but even still, Solomon's story's got me beat. It gives me hope. Don't let me chase after lesser things. Don't let me chase after lesser lovers or be distracted by the riches and the wealth or the whatevers. And help me walk in faithfulness. But God, help me see that even when I fail, because I'm going to fail, that you're there to walk with me. God, for those who don't know you this morning, would you open up hearts to know you? Would you open eyes to see you? Would we see a bit of your glory this morning and be forever changed by it? God, our sin is great, but your mercy is more. So as we sing, as we pray, and as we do these things, God, would you you lead us where you want us to be? Help us walk in courage, the things you've called us to, to walk in. In your name we pray.